as we hear God's word this morning. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, well, as you can tell, we're in the Christmas season. No, not yet, not really. But in the word of God, we are looking at this section in Luke's gospel where he is walking us through the life of Christ and he's now gotten in Luke chapter 2 to the section where he is describing for us, making known to us the events that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ. So I know we're not in Christmas yet, but that's okay. Um, it's actually good. I feel like that we're looking at these passages not exactly in and around uh, the Christmas time because my aim, my desires were studying Luke's gospel is to try and read it and to hear it and to listen to it as it was first read and heard by those who received it, kind of removed from all the tradition and nostalgia of this season. And I just, my heart really has been overwhelmed as I've been looking at this passage new and afresh. Uh, typically when I've preached this section of God's word, it's been either on Christmas Eve or in the Advent season. And so just to take it as it is, there's so many things that stand out. And uh, today, I can't wait for what we're gonna, what we're gonna see. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter two. Uh, as you turn there, you know, it is true that we are coming to the end of 2023. Can you believe that? I mean, it's, it's rapidly coming to an end. And typically what happens at the end of the year, uh, you find this, is that a lot of the uh, 
people that publish dictionaries, either still in hardback form or online, one of the things they do at the end of the year is they always publish their word of the year, right? They often, you'll see in news articles about the different, oh, so-and-so picked this as their word of the year. Well, last year at the end of 2022, um, the Collins English Dictionary, they revealed their word of the year, and it was the word permacrisis, permacrisis. Um, this word, as it was defined by them, here's, here's what the word means. An extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events. That's called a permacrisis. Um, Anybody want to guess why in 2022 they picked that as the word, right? You know, we're coming out of uh, COVID, the Ukraine war was, was taking place, and, and this, this word, they said, seems to fit the time. And so the word permacrisis was their word of the year. The crazy thing about the word permacrisis is it could probably be the word of every year, don't you think? It's like if they thought 2022 was something, you know, it's like every year. There's instability, there's insecurity, there's a series of catastrophic events, like it's always happening in and around us. Well, today in our text, we're going to counter another word. It's a word that is basically the antithesis, the exact opposite of, of permacrisis. If permacrisis is, is all about uh, instability, insecurity, and catastrophic events happening in our world, today, as we look at the narrative of Jesus' birth, specifically starting in verse 8, we're going to see and we're going to learn of something that, well, I should say counteracts permacrisis. We're also going to learn in our scripture today why exactly permacrisis exists in our world. And so it starts with this. Back in verse 1 of chapter 2, Luke has done something. He has made a record for us of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to get into the full details of this, but one of the things that stood out to me in our study of verses 1 through 7 last week was just how simple the birth of Christ was. What I mean by that is if you notice in the text when Luke records the birth of Jesus and Mary's delivery of Jesus, he, he sums it up very simply and, she sa- and he says this in verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Mary was not given any kind of supernatural help. There were no angels on the scene in the delivery room where things took place pronouncing the birth of God come in the flesh. It's just so unassuming God's entry into this world as man, is it not? Um, when, you, when you look at the text, Luke says, I'm just going to tell you it like I heard it. And I appreciate that, church. Because if there was ever an opportunity for a gospel writer to embellish things in Jesus' life, his birth would have been the perfect opportunity to do it. But he doesn't. Which helps us even have more security. Which helps us to have even more trust in God's word. That, that no, this is what happened. When, when God took on flesh, when God entered into the world, he did it in the most simple way and he did it in one of the most humble ways. In fact, notice when Jesus was born... The people he was born to were most likely teenagers. Joseph and Mary were, were probably not that old. And where he was born was not in the home where they lived. Instead, he was born in, in, a, in a house of, of someone else. You know, we talked last week about how there's this image of Jesus being born outside of a house in a stable. When in reality, 
When you actually look at the text and what we know today, it's that he was most likely born in the house, but he was born on the lower floor or in the open common room. He was born in the room where they would bring the animals in at night so, so the animals would be kept warm and safe and couldn't get stolen, but they would also create heat within the home for, for everybody else. That's why when he was born... He was placed in a manger. Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, came in the most humble of ways. And, and something we said last week was, why did he come so humbly? Why did he come the way that he came, where he wasn't born in a palace, where he wasn't born with wealth, where he wasn't born with prestige? And the answer, we said, was, number one, it was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah said that when the Messiah would be born, we would not esteem him. We wouldn't look at him. There would be nothing that would, would draw us to him. He would be given none of the advantages of power and wealth as he came to do the work that God gave him to do. And that leads to the second reason why he was born so humbly, so lowly. It was for you and for me to be able to look at his life and say, he came to do one thing, to live a life of perfect obedience to the Father so that he would be the sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. And, and it, he did that by taking no advantage to himself. If you wonder why Jesus was born in, placed in a manger, why he was born into such poverty and such lowliness, it was so that no one could claim, well, he had something more than I had, so it was easier for him to do what God wanted him to do. He came in all this humility because it was absolutely necessary. And so when verse seven ends, it says they laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And I said that that's a bad translation. There was really, there was no room for them in the guest room. And so he had to, well, he had to be born in the living room of a, of a home. And, and so this is where we find Jesus and Mary. But then something happens it's not as though nothing supernatural happens in and around Jesus' birth. Here's where we want to get to our story today. The narrative continues. Luke does something. Look at verse 8 with me. It says this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Anybody ever heard that verse before? Yeah, it's so famous, so well known, especially around the Christmas season. I love what Luke does here. If I was a movie director, the camera would pan to the, to the scene where Joseph and Mary and Jesus are, and all of a sudden the, the camera pans out and it takes us out of the, the town of Bethlehem, out into the surrounding area, out into the countryside, where then the camera focuses on a group of shepherds going about their business. I want to show you a map here. This is a map that kind of gives you an idea of Bethlehem in relationship to Jerusalem. Uh, and so Bethlehem is about five miles from Jerusalem. We'll come back to this in, in a little bit. But you have the town of Bethlehem. And then outside of it, it's, it's a hilly area. There was a lot of uh, agriculture all out and around. And so these shepherds, it says that they were out in their fields keeping watch over their flock by, by night. It's interesting that 2,000 years ago. This is a picture of Bethlehem even today in the hills around it. it. It hasn't really changed all that much. I mean, the town of Bethlehem has exploded. It's bigger, but, but you get a general idea for the land and what it would have been like where the shepherds would have, would have grazed their, their flocks. And, and I want to just talk for a moment about the background about these shepherds because uh, I think that there's been a lot of uh, different ideas about them over time. But let me just give you some background on, on the shepherds, these, these people who are out in the fields. You've probably heard a lot uh, about them, but the first thing that you need to know was that at this time, Israel 
was a predominantly uh, agrarian society. So you had people that they farmed, they raised livestock in order to take care of themselves. There were significant cities and people would work in the cities, there's, there's no doubt, but a significant part of the population would have been out in these smaller villages and towns and they would have, and they would have had their, their flocks, they would have cared for their fields and their gardens and those kind of things. And, and part of those who were part of the society were these shepherds, but they were different. Because of their professions, they were more or less nomads. What, what I mean by that is they didn't really stay in one area all that long. They would move their flocks from area to area for them to graze and for them to feed. We all kind of know this. This is obvious stuff kind of uh, about shepherds. But back then, people didn't have ranches like they have today where you would own, you know, hundreds or thousands of acres and so you would move your flock from here to there. Some people had certain portions of land, but, but shepherds, they were, they were free to roam. They're free to take their flocks wherever there was open land that they could go to and that's what they did. And so because of their nomadic lifestyle, they weren't really well connected within society as a whole because they weren't anchored down in any one location, you know, they didn't have a community outside of their own community to kind of call their own. So they were a little bit on the outside of society, but then they were also a little bit on the outside of society because of another reason. To care for sheep was a 24-7 occupation. You were always with your, your sheep, and they are filthy creatures. No, they're, they're you know, they're, they're animals, and they're dirty, and, and one of the things that that the, the religious leaders in Israel at that time had done, they, they had added to God's word some ceremonial laws that made it so that people like shepherds who cared with animals were considered unclean unless they did some ritual cleansing. And that was a hassle to go through that ritual cleansing. And so if they wanted to go to worship in the temple or to visit on the Sabbath, uh, because they had to care for their sheep on the Sabbath, they'd often violate these extra biblical laws. And so, so what that meant was that people, if you interacted with someone who was ceremonially unclean, that would make you, guess what? Unclean. And so it was kind of a hassle to engage with shepherds at certain times in certain places unless you were prepared to go through all the things you needed to do to make yourself ritualistically presentable, if you will. And, and so it's not as though people didn't, you know, they, they hated shepherds, but it was just like, man, if I'm going to interact with them, um, that's going to be a bit of a problem for me and even for them. If I'm going to leave my flock, who's going to watch it while I go and take care of things? So it didn't mean, though, that being a shepherd was a bad thing. You know, there are two very prominent people in Israel's history. In fact, maybe two of the most prominent people in Israel's history who had fulfilled the occupation of a shepherd. The first was Moses. The one who helped to deliver God's people. Remember when he went and he saw the burning bush? You know what he was doing when he saw the burning bush? He, he was taking care of a flock. And then you have the one from whom Jesus was going to descend. The one who had been one of the greatest kings of Israel. King David was originally what? A shepherd. In the Old Testament, God himself referred to himself as a what? Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And so, so you have all these imageries of two of Israel's greatest figures were shepherds. And then God himself refers to himself as a shepherd. So it wasn't a profession that people would necessarily fully look down upon. Especially when God compares himself to a shepherd, when Moses and David were shepherds. In fact, Jesus would later describe himself as the, anyone, anyone? The good shepherd. Very good. All right. So you know some. So, so you have these people who are shepherds and they're out in their fields. They're taking and they're watching over their flocks. And, 
And something that a lot of people don't think about when it comes to the shepherds is what's going to happen next in the story. Uh, why is God going to come and visit them? Why, why is he going to appear to them as, as we even heard read in just a moment? Uh, you know, one of the things you don't think about is this. You saw Bethlehem is about five miles or so from Jerusalem. Now, at this time in Israel's history, does anybody know what very large structure was in Jerusalem at that time? The, the temple. Okay, not a trick question, right? The temple is in Jerusalem. And do you know what they did at the temple virtually every single day? Anybody guess? What is Sacrifices. Now, what are they sacrificing? They're sacrificing animals. And some of the animals they're sacrificing are sheep. And and. and all the Jewish people, they were required to make these sacrifices throughout the years. There were hundreds of thousands of animals that were sacrificed every single year. Where did they all come from? Have you ever thought about that? Some people would raise them themselves, but if you were, I don't know, 40 miles away, 50 miles away, if you were traveling from, I don't know, Nazareth to Jerusalem, which would have been a four days journey, are you wanting to drag your sheep? Are you wanting to drag your animal with you all the way to Jerusalem? You could do it, but you know what else you could do? You could stop along the way, get a little fast food, right? <laughs> Pick yourself up a little baba, right? You could, you could, what people don't think about is that people would get some of their animals from none other than who? Shepherds. You could make your purchases from a shepherd. And if you're in Bethlehem, so close to Jerusalem, and that's where you're at, listen, we often think of shepherds as being, you know, poor and lowly, and no doubt they, they lived outside and all those things. But listen, this was also a business for these people. It was a business for these people. And these shepherds being out there and having people come from, guess where? All over Israel to come to Jerusalem. And if you were coming and you would stop and you would buy sheep from these shepherds, like they were probably pretty well known throughout Israel in different regions because people would come to Jerusalem and they would buy these sheep from the, from the shepherds, right? So there was a transactional thing that would take place. And so people probably were acquainted with them and, and bought these things. One of the reasons why, and this is a little bit conjecture because we don't know for sure, but for some reason, the religious leaders at this time, they really did not like shepherds. We have this from rabbinical literature. And there's different reasons that people think about it. I think potentially one of the reasons why there was maybe an issue between the religious leaders and the shepherds was because they probably had a little bit of the corner of the market on, guess what? the selling of the sacrificial animals. And, and so, so, so you got these men, they're out there, and, and they're good at what they do because it's nighttime and they're keeping watch over their flock by night. Now that's a little fact. You've heard it a billion times when you hear the Christmas story, but Luke is actually telling us something that is really important. He understands that shepherds, it's a 24-7 job and that they're watching their flocks at night because they don't want their flocks to get stolen. They don't want their flocks to get attacked. They had to do, do this. And while they're there, look what happens next. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Every time I read this, I love this part of the story so much. That little phrase appeared to them. It's a phrase that's used in Greek literature and other places of somebody all of a sudden standing like next to you. 
So the nearness of this angel wasn't like all of a sudden he was like out there. It was that he was relatively close. And so they're out watching their, their flocks at night and he appears. One of the things that freaks me out here at the church all the time is that our office door in the back, like you'll, you'll go out the office door and on random occasions, right, as you're pushing the door to open it, somebody's on the other side. Have you ever had those experiences? And, you know, without a doubt, whether it's me or Pastor Paul who screams like a girl, like, no, you know, it's like, no, I just see something. He doesn't. He doesn't. I scream like a girl. Uh, you know, you, you push the door and then somebody's there and you're not anticipating it. And so you're what? You freak out. Well, all of a sudden, they're there at night and this angel appears to them. We don't know who the angel is is, his name isn't given, we can kind of presume that maybe it's Gabriel one more time, but it's not just that the angel appears, something else appears with the angel, do you see it? And it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Church family, I love this little part because, you know, at that time, the only light that would have been emitted in the evening was light that would have come from a fire, right? So the brightest that you could ever get at nighttime was how big your fire could get. This word for the glory of the Lord shown around them indicates a, a brightness of such a supernatural nature because this angel has come from God's throne room, has come from God's glory, and he's, and he's taking it with him, and we're getting here just a little window into heaven. The curtain is parting open, and, and, the, and the shepherds are seeing something that they have never seen before. There's not electricity at this time. They know that this is a supernatural encounter. In fact, that word where it says, the translation says that they were filled with great fear. Um, th that's a pretty good translation of the Greek, but, but like the literal reading of it would be greatly fearing they feared. So, so take the fear level and crank it up an extra notch. They, they were undone by what they saw. But then this really good part comes. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, what? Fear not. Fear not. I kind of think that this is Gabriel because he's had some practice with this. He did it first with Zechariah in the temple, you know. Zechariah, you know, surprise, you know, fear not, okay. He does it with Mary, you know. He comes and he says, do not be afraid. I'm kind of thinking after like, you know, thousands of years of interaction with humans, angels would have figured out a different way to surprise humans, you know, to... But I also think it was absolutely necessary that they arrive the way that they do. So that the people that they encounter, make no mistake, they're not dealing with something that is, quote unquote, of this world. But now look at why he says that they don't have to be afraid. And the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Right out of the gate, he says, here's why you don't need to be afraid. I'm not here to attack you. I'm not here to harm you. I'm not here to bring a word of judgment or cursing to you. I come to bring you a message. I'm here to deliver a message to you. And it's not a message that's a bad message. It's not something that you should be worried about. Instead, look at what he says. He says three things to them. He says, I'm here with a, with a proclamation. And you want to know what the proclamation is? It's first and foremost, there is good news. That's the first thing. He says, I'm here to proclaim something to you. What I proclaim to you is that there is good news. In contrast to bad news, there is good news. In contrast to a permacrisis, I've got good news for you. 
It, it's the, the, the derivative of this word is the word euangelizomai. It's a word from which we get evangelism. It's a word from which we get gospel. And so he's like, I've come to you with gospel. I've, I've come to you to proclaim good news. You're not going to be cursed. You're not going to be hurt. You're not going to be attacked. Let me just ease your minds and say, there is good news for you. You know, when you have somebody that's in such a position like an angel, somebody who you can tell is your superior, like you can understand how comforting that would be in the beginning. I think they realize this person could, could crush us, and so he tries to alleviate that. He says, I have good news. But then the second thing he says of this, this proclamation that he has from, it's not just that there's, there's good news. Church, here's where things really get dramatic. Here's where, let's just pull apart for a moment the Christmas tradition that goes around this story, and let's just hear what he's saying. Here's the dramatic thing. The next thing he says is that there is, there's good news, but this good news produces or is the source of Great or never-ending joy. There is good news that produces unending joy. That's what he says. It's right there in the text. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what kind of joy? Of, of great joy. Megalane kara in the Greek. Megas for the word that we get, you know, something's big, something is huge, but it's more than that. When he says, I've got great, I've got good news of, of great joy, this is... Him coming and saying, I have good news that, that produces a joy, that is a source of joy that's unlike anything else. It's bigger, it's greater, it's the best kind of joy. And the only way that it can be the best kind of joy is if it's a joy that's never ending. This is a bold proclamation. That the news that I have for you is a news that when received is a source of this great, unending Joy. The way that I like to picture it is if you were living in Israel at that time, one of the most precious things to you would have been water. Uh, to live in an arid climate, well, we don't have to guess at it. We live in California. It's the same thing. To have a source, a water source that you know will always be there, always producing. As you can go to time and time again, there's a great comfort. There's a security in that. And so this proclamation of the angel is, listen, I've got good news. Here's why it's good news. It, it, there is this, there's this news that produces an unending joy for you, but notice he doesn't stop there. This is where things really get audacious. Look at who the good news is for. He says, thirdly, it is good news of great joy for how many people? All the people. There is good news that produces unending joy, and it is for all people. This is what the angel comes and says to us. Rarely is good news for more than a couple of people, right? Like, rarely is good news more for than a couple of people. You know, we just had the World Series. If you had Ranger fans, and then you, what was the other team that they were playing? Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks, thank you. It was such a stellar series. Um, you know... It's like half the people were really happy. Half the people were really sad. If you're a Diamondbacks fan, they lost. It's, you know, hey, the Rangers won the World Series. For Rangers fans, that's great news. For Diamondbacks fans, it's, it's not good news. Have you ever tried to take your family out to eat somewhere and pick the same place? How many times do you pick a place to eat? Say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take everybody out to dinner, you know? And you think, you know, you're doing a good thing. You think you're really going to bless everybody. And then you ask the question that you should never ask. 
Where do you want to go? You know? And you get five different answers. And then, you know, like, a, you know, a fifth of the family's, you know, happy. And the other, you know, four people are, aren't happy because rarely is good news for all people. But it says here, the angel says, I have good news that can produce unending joy for all people. Now sit on that. Just sit on that. Do you see how bold and audacious that claim is? It doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter what your background is. I have good news of great joy, and it's for everybody. That is an audacious claim. I mean, we have to, we have to really consider it. That's what we're going to look at next. How can that actually be true? Because it's ridiculous on the face of it when you, when you consider the magnitude of the claim. But one of the things they don't want to pass by is this. <clears throat> Did you know that you are specifically mentioned in the Bible? Did you know that you, you today in Valley Center are specifically mentioned in the Bible? I love this so much. Most people don't realize it. Because check this out. It says that this good news of great joy is for all the people. Now, let's see. I'm a people. You're a people. Which means that this is good news of great joy for who? All of us. You're in the Bible. What he says here, the angel, has to apply to us today as well as it had to have applied back then. Do you see now even how greater the claim is? It's not temporally bound, this claim. It's not just for the group of people back then. It's for all the people without and, and so it begs the question, what exactly is this good news that creates this kind of joy? We don't have to wait for the answer. He says it next. Now, for many of you, you might be familiar with this, but I'm asking you just hang with me, okay? He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And here it is. Here's the news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, what? Christ the Lord. And the verses right before this, remember, we looked at it last week, but we know who the one born is, right? It's the son of Joseph. It's the son of Mary. It's the one who was born in verses 1 through 7. This is who the angel is talking about. He's talking about Jesus. And here's where the angel comes and says to us exactly, though, who this child is. We see him born in verse 7, but now the angel says, this is how you must think of this child who is born the very first thing that he says is this, a savior has been born. You want to know what the good news is? A savior has been born. Now, watch. Let's use our minds. Church family, remember what the angel said. The good news he has to share is for how many people? All the people. The only reason why the birth of a savior could be good news for all people is because all people need what? Saving. Oh, man, look at you. you. You know, it's early in the morning, but you're with me. The audacious news is that there can be joy experienced by all people. And he says, here's why. Because a Savior has been born. Listen, if somebody is a Savior, that means that they are responsible for doing what? Saving. And the only way that this could be good news for all people is if all people need a? Savior, if we need to be rescued, 
And so what's being said here is at the heart of the Christian message. It's at the heart of all the scriptures. It's at the heart of what God's word tells us. If you don't get this and you won't understand why this is good news, humanity is in desperate need of saving. Without fail, every person who is ever born needs to be saved. The question is, from what do we need to be saved? Where do we need to be rescued? You know, the other week, is about two weeks ago, there's this guy who was flying his plane in the evening in Florida. Uh, it was a Cessna, and then this is what happened. I want to show you the picture. He crashed in the Everglades, okay? Yikes, right? I mean, he's in the middle of nowhere in the Everglades. He was able to climb out onto the wing of his plane. Anybody know what's in the Everglades? <laughs> Nasty things, right? You got pythons, you got, you know, like, listen, alligators, who knows? Yeah, like not a good place to crash, right? And he was there, and he was there for eight hours. Where he was in the middle of the Everglades, he needed what? Saving. Saving. There was no possible way that he could get out of this situation by himself. He would have died. The moment he went in that water and went any kind of a distance, he would have been a goner. But eventually, he got saved. Now listen, let's go back to it for a moment. If the great news is that a savior has been born, it means that we need rescuing and it means that we cannot save ourselves. And so from what do we need rescuing? From what do we need saving? Well, if you've been around the church any period of time, it's not that we crashed a plane in the Everglades. In fact, it's something far, far worse than that. We saw this last week in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, it becomes all the more clear what we need saving from. When the angel visited Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, we see it very clearly. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered all these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of Mary, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is from which humanity needs rescuing. The prophet Isaiah said our iniquity is our problem. The, the way that the angel says it, our sin is the problem. And what is sin? It's our active rebellion against God. It is us rejecting God and rejecting his ways. And the scriptures are clear, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so all of us have sinned, which is why all of humanity needs a savior. This is from what we need rescuing. The answer is sin and its impact on us. Sin and its impact on us. This is why Jesus came. You want to make sense of why people do bad things? 
This is what's so crazy to me is that people don't like in broader society at times talking about sin, talking about you and I having this internal problem in us that goes to our core, the sin nature that we are born with. But listen, the Bible so clearly says this is why there's every problem in the world. This is why there's broken relationships. This is why there is war. This is why there's conflict between people. It's why you hurt others and others hurt you. It's because of sin. Now, what if someone could come and could deliver us from all of that? You see, when the scriptures go into detail, I'm going to fly through this just because I think it's important for us to note. Sin is the reason for God's judgment upon us. Sin is the reason for God's judgment upon us. It's one of the things that the scriptures say. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we are under the judgment of God. We are separated from, from him. He can't have anything to do with us. Um, sin also, as we've talked about, it enslaves us to unrighteousness. We are slaves to our sinful nature and to the unrighteousness of sin. Jesus would say it clearly during his earthly ministry in John 8, 34. Jesus answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You are enslaved and you can't rescue yourself. You can't get out of it. I can't get out of it. We're in a more perilous situation than the guy in the Everglades. That's what it means, sin's impact upon us, and it leads to death. It leads to death, for the wages of sin is death. It's death, God's judgment. Present enslavement to sin future eternal punishment, current separation from our God. Sin is a huge problem. And so when the angel says, fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy, that's for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What he's saying to us is this. Don't you understand that right now you have someone who is coming, someone who, who will come and you are a slave to sin. You are receiving punishment and death, but you don't have to because now Jesus is here. A rescuer has come for you. But here's where we need to be really clear. This is something that I think we can miss, but I don't ever want us to again. Why is it Jesus why is Jesus the one to save us? Why should I put all my eggs in that basket? Why should I believe the pronouncement of the angel? Why should I believe that a baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago can be the one who can save me from my sin and therefore produce in me a never-ending joy? Well, again, we don't have to guess at it because the angel tells us. First, he tells the shepherds, but then we get to hear it today. Did you hear it? It was right there in the text. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, and he says two things, Christ the Lord. This is why he's the one. This is why Jesus is the one to be the Savior that we so desperately need because he pulls back the veil for a brief moment on that baby in a manger and he says, yeah, it's gonna be a baby. Yeah, he's gonna look really cute. But let me pull back the veil and tell you who this baby is. Why is Jesus the one to save us? Because Jesus is the only one with the position and the power to do so. Jesus is the one with the position and the power to save. That's what those two things are. When he refers to him as Christ the Lord, he is pointing us to, and he's pointing us shepherds to, this true identity of Jesus. One, he has the position. That, that word when he says that he's Christ, 
that refers to the anointed one. In the Old Testament, it was the word that was used for Messiah. Christ and Messiah, they're interchangeable. And, and Christ refers to the anointed one. This points to his position. This points to his position. When it talks about Christ being the anointed one, in the Old Testament, somebody would be anointed for a specific purpose, for a specific royal role. Um, priests would be anointed by God. Um, kings would be anointed. And so when it says that Jesus is the Christ, it's saying that he is God's anointed you see, God is the creator of the world. It's God who we rebelled against. And so it's God who sets the terms for our redemption, for our ability to come back to him and to engage with him. And if Jesus Christ isn't God's anointed one, then he can't be the one to save. Because you have to have God's plan being fulfilled. And so when it says that Jesus is the Christ, church, whenever you hear that, you must hear he is God's anointed. He is God's chosen one. This is God's plan through him. There was no other Messiah. There's no other anointed one. It's only Jesus. This is why he can save us. This is why, well, we can say there's good news of great joy because God's appointed one has come. But notice and this is, this is so powerful. He's not just the Christ. He is the what? Lord. Do you know what's being said here? This is, he is God in the flesh. That word for Lord is God in the flesh. He's not only got the position, but he's got the power because he's God come down. Now that word for Lord, kurios, is a word that's used in the Greek and it can be just used to describe the relationship between a superior and an inferior. But that's not what it means here. It is a specific reference to Jesus being God himself. And you want to see something that you might have missed previously when you read the text? Look at, I'm getting to the, to the end of the story, but notice how what the, what the shepherds do after they hear the message. It says, after the angel comes and he says the things to them, it says, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the what? Lord has made known to us. Do you know how they're using that word Lord? Who did the angel just come from? came from heaven, came from God. And so when it says that, let's go and see the thing that the Lord has made known to us, they're using it to refer to who? God. And so when the angel says, for unto you has been born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, he's saying God has been born. See, sometimes we read that and we think that, like, where in the Bible does, does it say that Jesus is deity, that Jesus is God? It says it right here. That's who the baby is. And literally the words from the shepherds just a little bit later, they know where the angels came from. He came from God. And so they say, let's see the thing that the Lord has made. No, it's the same word. Why can he save us, church? Because he's the one with all the power. And by the way, when God was speaking through Isaiah in Isaiah 42, 8, he said, I'm the Lord, that's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so... So we are dealing with here God in the flesh. One of the most fundamental and basic confessions of the Christian faith is that Jesus was not just simply a man. He was the God-man. And this is what separates us. Every other cult typically takes God and it removes, and, or takes Jesus and it removes his deity, but we don't do that. 
because then he wouldn't have the power to save. He might have the position, but not the power. But according to the angel, he has both, which is why Paul says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord. That's not just that he's just over your entire life. You're confessing Jesus as your God, which is a bold thing because God himself said, you shall have no other what? God's before me. It's the great mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is God, church. It's right here. And before Jesus says anything about himself, this is what the angels proclaim about him. But think about this. Now verse 12 makes a whole lot of sense. You see, lest the shepherds or us think that he would be unapproachable, Look at what verse 12 says. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. You can go and see him, the angel says. Although he is the Messiah, although he is the Lord, here's where you would find him. He's laying in a manger. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. Like you can go to him. You can, you can see him. He's, he's approachable. He's come in humanity, and, and there's, there's been a lot made about, about this being wrapped in swaddling cloths, like, oh, look at, you know, he's so poor, they wrapped him in swaddling cloths. No, this is what you just did back then for babies. The, the thing that shows us his approachability is that he's found in a manger. You're going to be able to come, you're going to be able to identify him. There are probably other babies in Bethlehem. How do we know which one is the actual one? It's the only one that's going to be in a feeding trough. <laughs> that's how you'll know it's him. Other babies are going to be lying in beds. This one's going to be in a feeding trough. And after they make that announcement, I got to keep going here. Darn, I have so much more, so much more. Let's go, verse 13. It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Bursting forth now, surrounding everyone is this multitude of angels. We don't know the number. It's a, it's a huge number of angels. I, I, I got this picture. Uh, the big house in, is where University of Michigan plays. So I want you to see this picture. This is the stadium. I think it seats like 115,000 people or something like that. I like to picture the shepherds down like where the M is and then boof, you know, you got all these people around them. But they're not chanting for a football team. They're saying glory to God in the highest. This is good news of great joy. And, and, and so it's like, we're so excited because everything that God does, he does for his glory. But then he says, guess what? You get the benefit and pleased. You're getting the benefit. He gets the glory. They're surrounded by this. And then as suddenly as they appear, guess what? They're gone. They're, they're, they're gone. And what happens? Well, then they look and they say this. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They're like, oh, let's go check it out. You want to know why they want to go check it out? Do you want to know why you and I should be willing to check it out and to know more of Jesus? It's because I'm going to fly through this. Because I always come back to these things, but I'm going to fly through this. It's because Jesus as your Savior means... All your sins are forgiven. If this is true, then all your sins are forgiven. Jesus is your Savior means you are freed from sin in the present. You're no longer enslaved. If he came to save you, not only are your sins forgiven, but 
But you're freed from sin in the present. You're no longer a slave to sin. And finally, you are a recipient of eternal life. That this isn't all there is, but, but life continues on. That, that you get to be with God one day. Restoration fully has happened for Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world. We don't know how well the shepherds understood it at the time, but we understand it fully today. Your sins are forgiven. You're freed from sin in the present. You're a recipient of eternal life. And so, yeah, glory to God in the highest. And I want to understand and know this Jesus. And so they go to Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem. And when they get there, look at verse 16. It says, And they went with haste. I think that's the only appropriate response. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. What was the saying that had been made known to them? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Hey, Mary and Joseph, if you didn't know it, and they're like, yeah, we knew. He's kind of special. Savior of the world, God's son. They're like, yeah, he is. The angels told us. He's our Savior, freed from sin. We have this rescue. We have this response. And verse 18 says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Look, my whole hope today in going back through this story is for us to, to look at it with a little bit of a new and fresh eyes, to, to consider really like what does it mean for him to be our savior and why can he be it? And if all of these things are true, church, and they are, there's only one proper response to this. The response that we should have to this is the response of the shepherds to experience the joy of this good news, believe it and proclaim it. Believe it. I can't make you do that. It's not good news to you if you don't believe that you need salvation from your sins. But it is good news of never-ending joy if you do believe it because it means you have been saved. And what that means is every day you wake up, you are not condemned. Praise the Lord. It means every day you wake up, you are free from sin's power. Every day you wake up, the truth is there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate you from his love ever again. That's why it's good news of never ending joy for you if you believe it. But so help our hearts and minds not just keep it for ourselves because it's good news of great joy for who? All the people. So let's do what the shepherds did. Let's not keep it for ourselves, but let's believe it daily and proclaim it to others. Let's pray. Lord, that you would do what you did. That you would come down and that you would make the way. That, Lord, what brought about our brokenness, what brought about our division from you, what brought about our judgment was our deeds, our sin. And yet, Lord, what you did was you came and you said, I'm going to make a way. You sent your one and only son into the world. He came not to condemn the world because we're already condemned. We're already enslaved. But he came to be the Savior. And Lord, for those of us who today know him as Savior, Lord, we say thank you. We also say forgive us for not living every day and not thinking every moment upon the greatness of what that means for us. And then thank you that you forgive us for all those times that we fail to live with him as our Savior.
to live with him as our Lord. You are so kind and you're so gracious, Lord. Help us to continually see this good news as great joy for us every day. And Lord, help us to faithfully go out in the world and proclaim it to others. And so we say thank you and we praise you. And we do this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen, amen.